Mastermind Agent is proud to present success calls. Top real estate agents from across North America reveal their success secrets, strategies, and systems in up-close and personal interviews. You can find all the calls at www.mastermindagent.com. Hi, I'm Mike Cerrone with Mastermind Agent. This month's top agent is Cody Gibson with Keller Williams in Portland, Oregon. Last year, he and his team closed 345 transactions with a total sales volume of $110 million. His average sales price was $319,000, of which 55% were buyers and 45% were sellers. Cody has a 152-member team, 140 salespeople, both core and expansion, and 12 administrative staff. Cody is the team leader of United Home Group. He's been an agent for 17 years. In this call, Cody talks about selling 16 homes in his first 16 weeks in the business, the mental shift necessary for high achievement, viewing production boards daily for motivation, why he focuses on escrows instead of closings, the DFT metric deal fell through and why you might want it higher, his aggressive expansion in the 76 market centers in 17 states and why he thinks he can still grow by a multiple of 10. His goal of 1,000 escrows this year. Why he looks for partner, not passenger agents. Division of tasks between hub and the expansion team. His approach to for sale by owners that's resulting in 25% of his business. FISBO scripts for initial contact, follow-up calls, and voicemail team dynamics, compensation, profit margins, and more. First, a quick word from our sponsor, RealGTV, real estate agent lead generation television. Need more referrals? Get a free script and simple three-part plan used by a top agent to receive and close 74 referral transactions in one year. Just go to freereferralscript.com. That's freereferralscript.com. Now, back to the show. Welcome to the call, Cody. Thanks, Mike. Hey, Cody, it's great to have you here. Cody, before we talk about what you're doing today, let's go back for a minute and talk about what you did before you got into real estate. Before getting into real estate, I had a couple of different career paths or job opportunities. At the time, I was the youngest manager in Kmart history. I'm assuming since then someone probably beat that. I did that for a couple of years, and I also sold political lobby organization membership uh, door-to-door to businesses. I sold diesel engines for a year uh, for Cummins. And then from there, I went into uh, real estate. So I had just a few jobs before real estate. And uh, I suppose if I went all the way back to being just a little tyke, I was a paper boy. <laughs> Actually, that's kind of interesting. <laughs> so you were in sales prior to getting into real estate. It's funny that you mentioned the interesting piece. The paperboy piece was my first ever opportunity in entrepreneurship. I had a paper route, and these people would say, hey, you know, do you have an extra paper? They'd always give me, like, an extra paper, right? And so they'd say, do you have an extra paper? And I'd go, well, yeah. And so they'd give me a buck for the paper. And I thought to myself, well, that's a lot more money than the paper companies paying me to deliver these papers. And so I would basically fill my bag with extra papers out of the paper box, and I kind of developed my own route within the route that I had from the paper company. And I was making two and three times the amount of money from my bandit route, if you would. You know, and nobody questions a paper boy. You walk up to a paper box, I mean, I don't know that we have paper boys anymore, though back in those days, which makes me sound old, 
you know, he'd walk up to a paper box, I'd put in 50 cents. Nobody questioned a paper boy taking out 30 or 40 papers because you had the giant bag on your shoulder with the name of the paper. Let me ask this. You said that right before you got into real estate, you were selling diesel engines. Why did you decide to go into real estate? You know, that's, I like that question. What happened was this. I had these two friends. And they were both realtors and they went to church where I went to church. And so one of them called me one day, like a Wednesday and said, Hey, do you want to go play golf? And I was selling diesel engines. And I said, dude, it's, it's Wednesday. I have a job. I can't go play golf. And he goes, Oh, Oh, that's right. You've got a job. And he hung up the phone and I was like, who is this guy? You know, he was a friend of mine, but like, what do you mean? What do you, what do you do that allows you just to go play golf on Wednesday? And so anyway, about a week later we were having lunch and, you know, he said, hey, come with me. And so he drove me back to his office and he pulled out a commission check and showed me a commission check for like, I don't know, 12 grand. And my eyes lit up. I'm like, holy cow. What he didn't share with me though, Mike, was that it was the only check he'd had in six months. <laughs> I learned that later. At the time, I'm like, whoa, 12 grand. And I'm thinking he gets paid every two weeks like I got paid. And I'm thinking this dude's pulling down 24 a month. And I thought to myself, you know, no offense. I thought to myself, if this guy can make that kind of money, I'm in. <laughs> so I quit my job and got a real estate license. Then I found out that he was actually you know, not a great realtor, didn't make a ton of money. And uh, the reality so hit. that's how it began. Yeah, the reality hit, right? Yes. That first year, when you figured out what was going on and the reality hit, did you have a fast start or a slow start? You know, I had a little bit of both. Here's what happened, right? I, um, I showed up on a Monday morning at eight o'clock. I realized on that day that the loneliest place on earth was a real estate company at 8 a.m. on a Monday. Like nobody was there. And the sales manager wasn't there I was supposed to meet with. And I sat in the lobby for an hour and he forgot who I was. And long story short, that day, you know, at the end of the day, I'm walking out to my car and he's walking out to his car and he said, hey, if you sell a house a week, you'll be okay around here. And I went, all right, okay. 16 weeks later, I had sold 16 homes. And I walked into his office like on a Thursday and I said, hey, this is week 17 now. I know I haven't sold a home yet this week. Like I was assuming that he was watching. He wasn't watching. I haven't sold a home yet this week. I've got two offers out. I've got opens all day Saturday. Um, can I have an extension until Monday to get my sale this week? <laughs> and he looked at me and Mike, he said, probably the worst thing he could say. He said, Cody, nobody sells a house a week forever. You know, it took me four months to sell the next house. Ooh. And the only difference was what I thought in my head, right? When he said, sell a house a week and you'll be okay around here. I mean, I was a kid. I thought what he was saying was sell a house a week and you could stay here. You see, I didn't realize back then that the real estate brokerage wanted the agent more so even than the agent wanted the brokerage. And so I thought it was, hey, sell a home a week or we got to cut you. And so I found a way to sell a home a week. As soon as he said that no one did it, I quit doing it. So it took me four months or so to get my groove back, if you will. And that was a tough four months. So it's a long answer to an easy question. I had a real fast start until I realized that you're not supposed to have a fast start. Let me ask a follow-up question on that. At the end of the four months, you finally got another sale. What happened after that? Did you kick back into one a week or was it rocky? I went right back to one a week. I mean, it was, you know, a bad month would have been three. A normal month would have been four or five, and a good month would be six or seven. And I spent the first few years of my career in those numbers. And what changed at the end of the four months? What clicked you back into the mentality that I'm going back to one a week? 
Well, the thing is, I didn't, the activities didn't stop. Like, I kept doing all the same things during that four-month dry spell. I was sitting open houses left and right. I was, you know, back then, we would uh, we would write classified ads. Like, every week, we'd have to turn in classified ads. I mean, this would have been the year 2000. We would write classified ads in the newspaper. And so our company would buy a giant block, and then we would buy little blocks from our company. And so I would write little classified ads, like, you know, little one-liners, two-liners, and I would spend all weekend converting inbound phone calls and sitting open houses. And it didn't stop during those four months. Like the activities didn't stop. I kept doing the same things. My results were different. And so the only thing I know is that about four months in, I popped another sale and it was almost like, oh, good, I'm back. My mindset is back where it needs to be. I can sell houses. And so the activities didn't stop. I didn't go home and lay in bed for four months and go, you know what, to hell with this. I'm going back to work. It wasn't like that. I kept working. The challenge was there was this mindset problem of, you know, am I even supposed to be this successful? Am I supposed to be selling this many homes? I mean, just this giant mind mess, if you will. And just by getting that next sell, that clicked you back in the gear. Sure. And, you know, I look at that and I go, all right, it's not too different than, you know, maybe you're a really good golfer and then you play golf for a month and you're just, you know, you're like, you lose your game. You know, your swing's off, and then you go out one morning, and you have a great round, and you go, oh, yeah, I know how to do this. And there's just a feel to it, you know, and somebody would say, oh, well, what did you do? And you'd go, I don't know. I just kept playing. And, you know, I think one of the biggest things that would make somebody successful, one of my biggest talents is that I won't be allowed. I mean, it's real hard to beat somebody who won't stop. And that sounds like that was your secret. It was that you kept going, you kept plugging away, and then success built on that next success. You, you became successful again and clicked right in. I'd walk in back in those days. I mean, this was a typical real estate office. Back in those days, I'd walk into the workroom and there was this giant wall with a, like a huge dry erase board, right? And there was listings on one side and sales on the other. And it was addresses and prices and like where the customer or client came from. And so I'd walk into that workroom every day when I showed up and I'd walk into that workroom every day before I left. It helped that my office was a desk bolted to the wall of that workroom. And I would look at that damn board and I would think to myself, well, Susie just sold a home. Martha just sold a home. Bob just listed a house. Bill just listed. These people aren't better than me, damn it. They're not smarter than me. They're not better than me. And if there's sales to be had, then I can go get one too. And I remember so many days walking in or out of that workroom and, you know, I wouldn't do it if somebody else was in the room because I had too much pride for that. Though if I was in the room alone, I remember I would look at that board, I'd point to it and say, if they can do this, I can do this. And it was a constant reminder. There were sales to be had. You made your own internal peer pressure. You created peer pressure of the other people and their success to motivate you to move forward. Sure. That's a, that's a really nice way of saying I thought if these idiots can do it, I can do it. <laughs> You're, you're just much kinder in how you deliver that. <laughs> <laughs> Good. No, seriously, I mean that in fun, and I also mean that in truth. Like, I'd talk to him in the hallway, and I'd walk away, and I'd think, that guy just listed three homes. If he can do that, I can completely do this. <laughs> That's great. Well, Cody, let's fast forward. How long have you been in the business so far? Uh, this was year 17, so it keeps it easy because I started in the year 2000. So 17 years in, this coming year is 18. And let's talk about last year. How many homes did you sell last year? 
Uh, last year, we closed 344 units for about 110, 111 million. The number that I look at more so than closings, I mean, closings were 344. We put into escrow just under 500. And it's interesting because if somebody asks me where our sales are at, I always know exactly where escrows are. I have to go look up actual closings. I feel like one number is the rear view mirror and one number is the front windshield. And escrows are the windshield. And so people could hear that and they could say, okay, 500 escrows, but only 344 closings. So you had 156 drop out and died. But they're probably not seeing that it's a continuum and that you're putting a lot more into under contract at the end of the year that rolled into the next year. Is that correct? Sure. I'd have to look in our, in our tracker. So I'll bet you that December, we sold 35 or 37 homes. And none of those would have closed that same month. And that November, we probably sold about 35 homes. So there's 70 units right there that wouldn't. I mean, the November ones may have had a chance to close. Though after like November 10, it's probably not going to close that year, especially with the two holidays in there. And so you've got 70 or 80 units right there that wouldn't even have a chance to close. They get pushed into the coming year. Now, when you're selling or putting into escrow almost 500 units, there's going to be some algorithm or some number of a DFT rate or a deal fell through, like a death rate, right? Like the ones that crash and burn, no matter how good you are. And that number across the country depending on who you ask, is anywhere between 10% and 20%. And do you know what your death rate is? It's hovered in the bad days. It's been as high as 22 23%. In the good days, it's hovered about 14%. Where I'd like to see it stay is about 17 And the reason I'd like it to be about 17% is that I believe the harder you push, I mean, the higher that DFT rate is going to be, it would make sense that you're probably working two types of business that most agents aren't. Number one, you might be really pushing FISBOs expireds. A tougher sale, right? Like when we work expireds or canceled, sometimes those listings are canceled for a reason. Sometimes those listings are expired for a reason. Like they're really tough sales. Sometimes for sell by owners or FISBO for a reason beyond just wanting to save the money. Sometimes they're really difficult. Sometimes the home is difficult. So when I look at a DFT rate, when it's 14%, I think it's too low. I want to see it more like 17, 16, 18%. Now, 22, 22 is a little bit steep for me. That high teens, though, says we're probably pushing on difficult business, which means we're closing more than we would have just by going to work every day and being nice to everybody. Like we're pushing on difficult business and we're probably putting together deals that are outside of just our friends and family. You know, for a realtor that hears a story like this and they go, whoa, 15% DFT or 20% DFT, these guys are terrible. You know, I close 90% of mine. Well, yeah, if all you ever do is sell homes to your cousin or your mom or your uncle or your best friend from church, of course, you close all those. They all trust you. I want to be selling homes to people every day that we say, hi, my name's Cody. Nice to meet you. Sign here. No offense, though, I think that's a stronger business. And a growing business. You mentioned that you track your escrows. That's what you're keeping an eye on. Do you also track your gross commission income, your GCI? Uh, we do not so much as the unit, though. There's a reason for that, too. And the reason for it is I know the one thing I can control is units. I know I can control units. Commissions I can't control too much of because that rides the wave of average sales price. Now, the last four or five years, average sales price in most cities has increased and not decreased, so money's better. However, 
that's going to ship like it always does. And what I don't want to do is be thinking GCI, 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 when the day is going to come back when GCI is not that pretty per unit because prices come back down and I have to be unit driven. So I always know the units. Sometimes I have to go and look for, look for GCI. So this year, 2017, our GCI close so far this year is 3.7 million in closed GCI. Escrows opened GCI at 5.3 million. Before we talk about this year, I want to go back and clarify something about last year and then roll into this year. Last year, when you closed the 344 transactions, you had already started to do something that we'll talk about more later, but you started expansion and you have basically two parts of your business the way I see it. You have a hub and you have expansion. Could you tell us a little bit more about how that broke out between how many closings happened in your hub and how many happened in your expansion? And how many people work in the hub versus how many people worked in the expansion last year? Yeah, so last year in expansion, out of those 486 escrows, just shy of 200 were done in the hub. And the rest, so more sales were done outside the hub last year than in. So I think it was like 192 or 191 maybe in the hub, and the remainder to the 486 number was in expansion. However, the year before, it would have been flip-flopped where the majority of the business was done in the hub and just a portion was outside. And of course, today, gosh, we probably sell three homes to every one in the hub outside of the hub and expansion. And last year, when you had the 200 or so escrows that were happening in the hub, how many people were in the hub? On average, we would have had last year between seven and 10 salespeople. So on months where we were a little bit skinny or light, we'd have six or seven salespeople. Three of them or four of them would have been listers and a few of the buyer's agents. Towards the end of last year, we shifted that model a little bit and we kind of, we didn't do away with listing specialists and buyer specialists. We believe in that model from the MREA book. We believe in the model of it. And we also kind of loosened the reins a little bit and said, okay, our listers, while they're focused on listings, this is in the hub only, while they're focused on listings, if they want to work a buyer, they can go work a buyer. We're not going to tell them they can't. And if they're a buyer's agent and they have the chance to take a listing, we're not going to tell them they can't take a listing. And so they have a specialization, though we don't, um, we don't force them to stay on one side of the business. Let's now move into this year, 2017, year to date. We're sitting here on October 12th, or just a little over three quarters of the way through the year. What is your goal for this year? How many closings do you want and where are you at? Our goal this year for escrows opened is 1,000. And our goal this year for closings was um, 650, 600, yeah, 650 closings. Knowing that with 1,000 escrows, number one, we're going to have 150 to 200 of those that can't or don't close for one reason or another. And then, of course, almost anything we put into escrow in November and December aren't going to close this year anyway, so those all go into next year. So we opened this year, 2017, with a big wave of business from 2016. And we'll do the same thing in 2018 and 2017. So our goal was 1,000 escrows opened and 650 closings as of today, October, uh, whatever today is, the 11th or 12th. We have 720 escrows opened and $196 million in volume. We've closed 505, and we're at $140 million in volume closed. 
Wow, very good. And how many people are on the team right now that are making that happen? As of this morning, we have 140 salespeople in the organization. Okay, and how many admin? Administration would be maybe 12. Good, so about 152 people, and that should keep you on track to put about 1,000 transactions into escrow. Yes, and what's interesting is that, you know, when I look at it every month and I go, all right, what's our average productivity per person? I have to look at the whole year, right? Because we're at 140 partners in October. So if I went back and looked at the numbers, I believe it was May or June that we broke 100. And back in March, we would have had maybe 65 or 70 partners. And so massive explosion in growth this year. And so I'm going to end the year, my guess is somewhere in the 175 agent number, maybe 180. And if I take that 175 or 180 and divide it by the sales we had this year, I won't be proud of the per agent productivity until I do the actual math and go back to go, okay, well, in this month, we had this many partners and did that many sales. Does that make sense? Sure. You know, so I have to remind myself to go back to the math. Otherwise, I look at it and go, wow, what's going on around here? <laughs> well, you're in growth mode. And for everyone listening, we're going to be going into some marketing ideas in a minute on more of an individual basis. But just to sit here on expansion for a second, how big do you see this getting? You're doing something unique. You're expanding beyond your hub, your local market. I guess the better question first is how many markets are you in right now? And then where do you see it going? How big do you see it getting? So as of today, we're in 76 different, um, of course, we're Keller Williams, and so we call our offices market centers. We're in 76 different market centers, which spans 17 different states. And when I look at how big could we go, you know, there was a time, this would have been, let's see, this is 2017. In 20, it was in 2014, I wrote that we would be in 40 cities by the year 2020. And there were two reasons for that. Number one, I couldn't think any bigger than that at the time because we were in maybe three cities at that time. So 40 seemed like a whole long way from three. And so I was almost embarrassed to say 40 when I was at three. It just felt so huge. The other reason was I thought, all right, this is kind of a fun number. Um, in the year 2020, I'll be 40 years old. We're in 40 cities. It'll kind of be a fun story, uh, at least for myself. Nobody else cares. Uh, at least for me, it'd be fun. And so I wrote that as a goal, right? And in 2017, early this year, we cracked that 40 city number. And uh, my executive assistant, uh, KK, said, Cody, hey, you got to change this because it's outdated. And I looked at her and I said, there's no way I'm changing that. And she goes, but we hit it like two and a half years early. I said, I know. That's my reminder to myself that even when I think I'm thinking big, I'm probably not thinking big enough. Because I would have told you, Mike, I would have told you right to your face. Dude, 40 cities, I'm thinking huge. Like, I'm so far pushing the envelope on this thing, I'm, I'm almost embarrassed to tell you. And come to find out, we underestimate what we can do in just a few years' time. Because within a few years, we more than, heck, we're going to end this year doubling that number, and we'd still have two more years before the goal was even set. Well, you did set that back in 2014, before expansion teams really started to take off. How big do you see this going? Now that you've seen it for a couple of years, you've watched the acceleration, how big do you want it to get? My desire, it's probably as big as it needs to be for me. 
The problem is the business is not about me. At this point, the business is about everybody else within it. And so for me, how big it has to get is it has to be so big that the people that I'm in business with can earn or get what they want to earn or get what they want to get from it. So the business will have to grow to keep up with the people and the partners and the leaders of the company. I mean, for me, I could make the income that I'd like to make at the level it's at today. I mean, it doesn't have to get a whole lot bigger for Cody. The problem is, if I'd like other people to make great money, I have to be willing to let it get so big that it scares me. And so when I think about size for how many locations or where we'd like to be, Keller Williams is in, I believe today, about 850 or 880 different offices. And so I think for us as an expansion company, as far as goal setting, that's a pretty good start for us too. There's no reason we couldn't be in every single KW office. So that's becoming your new goal is to have an expansion team in every office in the KW system. Correct. In the U.S. Wow. Do you have a deadline for when you think that'll happen? No, here's my thought. I think that next year, 2018, I think we'll end the year in about 220 or 250 locations, and it'll grow as fast as our leaders can take it. So whether it takes us three years to get there or five years to get there, I'm not too attached to that as long as we're making our progress towards it. And as long as our people are earning what they want to earn. I mean, and really the only, the only limit that we have today is a limit in leadership. In other words, the inability to attract great leaders would be my only limit and the inability to provide great systems and models that makes it a viable business opportunity and a smart business opportunity for our expansion partners. As long as we can provide more opportunity and more help for our expansion partners, we don't have a ceiling, and neither do they. Help us with the model of who does what, and what I mean by that is, what does the hub do versus what does the expansion group do? So the expansion partner works with the buyers and sellers. The expansion partner is making the contacts and doing the legion and going on the appointment. The hub is doing as much of everything else as possible. Now, in some states, because of state law, we can do a little more or a little less in that state. So in some states, we do all of our data processing from Portland. In some states, we can have our transaction coordinators here in Portland call the seller and call the buyer and say, hey, here's what happens next, blah, blah, blah. In other states, we have to only email them and or go through the actual licensed agent in that state. And so there's just an extra step in there. So we just have to be careful how we do things to make sure that we're always legal. And that's fine. Though within the hub, we do the best we can to take care of almost everything outside of direct lead generation, going on the appointment, getting the contract signed, and going to the closing. Everything else we can help with. So if it's scheduling photos, for our partner or helping to schedule putting a sign up or taking a sign down or helping to schedule a home inspection or making sure that the documents get shuttled back and forth. All the little things a typical agent who you know wants to make a great income says, shoot, I'm really good in front of people. I'm really good listing homes. And it's all this other stuff that drives me nuts. It's all this other stuff that makes me stop doing activities where I make $100 an hour And instead, I'm doing activities that I should be paying somebody $15 an hour for. And so at the hub level, we step in and try to take on as much of that as possible, all the way down to like 33-touch marketing. We take care of the 33-touch for our partners. You know, they don't have to think about it. We send it out for them. We take care of the internet lead generation for them. They don't have to think about, okay, 
my ad spend okay this month? Do I have my Google AdWords put together? Did I respond to, we like commissions, Inc. Sync. Did I respond to Sync fast enough and tell them what to spend next month? We take care of all that for them. You know, did we get exchanged in the MLS? Do we have proper listing information online? All this stuff that takes their time. Our goal for our partner is that they could spend 80 to 90% of their available work hours directly with clients that they're either closing or opening escrow with or getting into business with. And if we can do that, they can earn more money. The way I've tried to visualize this concept is that if you had a team that was in one location and that team, they have admin doing the admin services, and then let's say they had a buyer agent, that buyer agent could be right there in your office or an office right next to you, you know, physically right next to you. And in this situation, it's the same, except that that buyer agent might be 100 miles away or 200 miles away in another office, and the technology allows you to stay connected with them just as though they were sitting in the office right next to you. Correct. And the thing is, even if they were sitting in the office next to you, you're going to communicate on email. You're going to communicate on some type of messenger or text or whatever. So whether they're in the office next to you or they're in an office seven states away or 12 states away, it's still going to feel virtual. And so when we got over that, when we realized, oh, well, our partner in Atlanta could work with our transaction coordinator in Portland, and it wouldn't be all that much different other than they can't high-five each other in the morning in person when they get a cup of coffee. It's still going to be virtual. They're still out in the field all day. They're still emailing back and forth all day. They're still communicating all day on the phone or text. What's the difference? Who cares if it's 25 feet away and you don't see that person or 2,500 miles away and you don't see that person? Now, in the expansion group or the expansion office, do you typically have one agent or are there more than one agent in that expansion group? One of the things that's unique about United Home Group's model for expansion is that, and we don't think anyone's doing, like when I look at the expansion landscape today, all of the big expansionists I'm close with, I'm friends with them, I have a high degree of respect for them, and that's reciprocated. I mean, we all respect each other and we're all learning from each other's mistakes. In fact, we're all sitting around looking at each other's businesses saying, what are you doing wrong? <laughs> Where are you messing up right now? And we're all watching and we're learning. And so one of the things that makes our, our model unique is that we limit how many partners we'll put in an office. And, you know, we'll find out in about a decade if that's a smart idea or not. Though right now we limit it. So based on agent count of the market center is how many partners can be awarded a United Home Group uh, platform. And so if the market center has 150 associates, we will allow two people to be United Home Group partners. And the most we'll put into an office is six. And what that does, of course, is that in my mind, that keeps the opportunity to be a United Home Group partner. There's a little bit of exclusivity to it and a little bit of scarcity to it. In other words, the average market center size for Keller Williams is about 250 people, which means we'd put three, maybe four people in that office. In other words, you're not competing with 11 other people on your team or 12 other people on your team. If we're delineating leads or, or moving opportunity around, there's two people or four people, there's not 20. And what we're not doing is duplicating the MREA model. Now in Portland, uh, where we have a true-to-form MREA level team, we could have 25 salespeople in it. I just wouldn't do that in an expansion location. And some of my closest friends are, and I don't think they're wrong. At the same time, we're just real clear on how we want our model to look, and we don't, we don't need 
20 partners in one office. I'd rather have two or three or four and provide more opportunity to fewer people in that office. For the expansion partners that are in another state, they're far away from your hub, how are you keeping them in the loop on communication? How are you managing them? And how are you making sure that your culture is going into that person or that group of people? That's a beautiful question. Let me give a couple of answers. Number one, we don't hire partners that we're going to have to manage. And what I mean by that is we're real clear on partnership and not passengers. If we hired passengers, then we'd have to manage them. If they're partners, that means they do one part of the role. We do one part of the role. We come together and we say, wow, we don't have to have each other, though life is better with each other. In other words, it's a very interdependent model. We say, here's what you do. Here's what we do. Together, here's what we get to accomplish. We get to do more together than apart. Now, in the local market centers across the country where we're in 76 different offices, um, there's two forms of supervision that goes into that. One, they have direct supervision at the market center level with the broker. I mean, they still have to be a, a real estate agent in that state. So they still have that supervision with that broker, and that broker still has to oversee their licensing activities. As far as what we do, though, we don't spend very much time on management. We spend all of our time on leadership. And so we have a regional director in whatever region that partner's in, and that regional director lives in that region and actually gets to meet with the lead, talk, coach, that partner. And so if you're a partner of ours in, I'll just pick on Atlanta. If you're a partner of ours in Atlanta, you work with our regional director, Chad Hyams, and Chad lives in Atlanta, and you might see him physically every few weeks at an event or a meeting or a training event, and you would talk to him every week on a coaching call. Then as far as the hub goes, back here in Portland, if you're a partner of ours again in Atlanta, you might be talking to the hub every day, depending on how many transactions you have going or how many open escrows you have or how many listings you have or whether you're closing two files tomorrow or opening two files tomorrow. You might be communicating back with the hub and your transaction coordinator you know, three times a day, five times a day. Then from the hub level for leadership, there's between two and four opportunities a week where the hub is training, whether the hub is doing a think tank call every week where it's just warm. We just do like an open coaching uh, session and whoever shows up, we just coach and talk. And, you know, it's a very organic piece. Then on Fridays, and that's always led by one of our regional directors or a top agent. Then on Fridays, we do a, what we call an all partner call or Friday development call for all of our partners. And that's usually led by myself or one of our regional directors. And so we coach and train there from the hub as well. Does that answer your question a little bit? It does. And through that coaching and training, that's how you're getting your culture out there. You're showing what your value system is. You got it. Yes. And you're connecting through communication going back and forth to help mold people into the form that you want to see them, what kind of product you want to be them providing out there at the other end. Well, and that tells us who we're supposed to be in business with, right? I mean, we're growing fast. There's no doubt about that. And we're okay with that. I mean, to a degree, I would say to the world, don't judge me as an organization by who we hire. Judge me as an organization ultimately by who we keep and who we're still in business with. And so as an organization, we bring people on fairly quick. I mean, we're, we're a little picky about who we hire. We kind of have a good idea of who we should and shouldn't hire. Though what happens is once they get into our organization, you know, we get six weeks in, eight weeks in, and the partner looks up and says, hey, I don't want this accountability. 
I don't need somebody asking me every week, you know, hey, where's your 411? Hey, where's your goal sheet? Hey, where's your budget this week? You know, I just want to wake up, sell some homes, and go home. And that's not, um, that's not the partner that we want. You know, we're after the partner that says, listen, you know what? I want to be accountable, and I want to play this at a high level. I want to play this like an elite athlete level. And we find out pretty fast the ones who don't want to. Tell us a little bit more about that profile of the expansion partner that's working well within your system. Did they just get in the business? Have they been in the business for a few years or 10 years or 20 years? Are you absorbing existing teams? Is it someone who's already been making sales? What is the profile of the best fit for your organization as far as an expansion partner? You know, we've done all of the above. And we have uh, brand new agents that come into the organization that don't know anything about selling homes. And what they find valuable is that they don't have to go out and learn it. They don't have to go out and learn the hard way. Then we have partners who come to us and they've been selling homes for two years or five years or 15 years. And they go, oh my gosh, we have a deep respect for these systems and the models of the organization because we've been wanting to build those systems and models and haven't been able to. Or we've come to realize just how hard it is to hire people and train people. And if I could be part of UHD and not have to do that, perfect. You know, when you join a great expansion business, and I like to think that ours is, when you join one like that, you should be able to take a six or eight year leap in your real estate career that day. So in other words, if someone were to join me today, they would take a six or eight year leap in what they can provide. So what I mean by that is, for instance, today, if you join me, maybe you don't have a transaction coordinator. Well, the second you join me, you have a transaction coordinator. If you join me today, maybe you don't have a 33 touch coordinator and marketing person. Well, the second you join me, you've got a 33 touch coordinator and a marketing person. You know, if you join me today, then maybe you don't have a telemarketing center. Though the second you join me, you have a telemarketing center that you could literally just go on our internal app and say, hey, here's the address and here's the closest 100 neighbors to it. And our telemarketing division makes phone calls to those 100 people saying, hey, so-and-so is doing an open house this weekend there. Mike, do you realize it took me 15 years being a real estate agent to have a telemarketing company? 15 years. A partner joins me on Monday, and Monday afternoon, they have a telemarketing business. You know, and, and that's where partnership shows up. That's where we're not passengers. We're partners. Now, you know, the idea behind it, like we had a partner in uh, Southern California that was brand new that had a license for like a week when they joined us. They gave us a call around to do. Our telemarketing division made the call around. Someone came to the open house they were invited to, bought the home, and it was a six or $700,000 sale. Well, that agent who's brand new thinks that's how real estate works. <laughs> you know, they, they walk around and go, hey, everyone's got a telemarketer. And I'm like, whoa, hang on. It took me 15 years <laughs> to have that. And we're fine with that. That's okay. You know, on the other hand, we have great partners who have been in business for, you know, 5, 10, 15 years, and they join us and they say, I've been trying to build this. And by joining us, they just take a giant shortcut to get there. Both are fine. Now, a quick word from our sponsor, Real GTV, real estate agent lead generation television, where top agents reveal exactly how they create consistent flows of home buyer and home seller leads into their practices every month. Need more leads? Hit the pause button right now. Open Google and search Real GTV. That's R E A L G dot TV. Now, back to the show. 
Now, you've mentioned some of the resources that they get. How about lead generation? That's always big for everyone. Is the hub creating any lead generation for the expansion partners? Yes. And so we believe the answer is always and and not or. And so some businesses that go into expansion or will go into expansion or even teams, they begin to think or. Do I do lead gen for the partner or do I provide XYZ and they do the lead gen? Do I do telemarketing or do they do it? And do I do a transaction coordination or do they do it? We just believe in and. And so in our business, we do everything. And when I say we do everything, I didn't say we do everything well. Like we're growing every day. We're learning every day. I believe you got to crawl before you walk and walk before you run. Though we chose to do expansion the hardest way possible. Some of my friends that went into expansion said, look, providing transaction coordination in all these cities is too darn hard. We're just going to provide these services, let the partner do their own TC work. And I said, cool, I think that's a good idea, though we're going to provide TC work from the beginning. And if that means it's messy or difficult, that's okay. We're going to eventually figure it out. And so on the lead generation side, a couple of areas that are big for our lead generation is, number one, every one of our partners receives a commission sync platform or a sync platform that if they were to go out and buy on their own in that city would be $1,500 just to turn on per month, plus whatever you might spend in, you know, AdWords or PPC or Facebook PPC. Uh, We do both. We do Google PPC and Facebook PPC is where 90% of our pay-per-click dollars go or ad spend goes for the partner. And the fact that somebody could join me on Monday and the next day we start opening their commissions Inc. platform, you know, we pay that for them. And that's a huge benefit. They'd be paying $1,500 a month to have that. And so we drive a tremendous amount of internet lead generation. You know, the internet lead gen uh, sometimes starts kind of slow. You know, you get a month or two in, you're like, oh, it feels kind of slow. And it's okay. When you get eight months in, you go, huh, I've got a few hundred people in here that I wouldn't have had. And I'm starting to pop two or three sales every month as long as I'm following up with them. It just takes that long for internet lead gen to work. The problem is most agents won't pay for it for eight months before it starts to work, right? Well, we just pay for it. We don't ever stop. And so we do the internet lead generation. We also do the our call center, our telemarketing portion of our business. Yesterday set six listing appointments for our partners. So yesterday we set six listing appointments in some cities across the country. And so our partners will get an email or a text saying, hey, you know, we're doing a call around, you know, we're doing your call around today that you requested. So don't be surprised if you have an appointment set or don't be surprised if you get some calls back today from voicemail that we leave for you. And so we have telemarketers here in the hub that are making calls as appropriate, you know, in those cities and in those states. Of course, in some states, there's different laws. And so we have to be careful about how we market in those states. Some states we can say more, some states we have to say less. Then on top of that, the partner is also doing lead generation. And so the partner's doing open houses. The partner's making their 20 contacts per day. And we're doing everything we can to assist them with it, whether it's using tools. So each one of our partners has LandVoice. And if they were to order or buy the data from LandVoice directly, they'd be spending $300 to $400 per month. Well, being a partner with us, we pay it for them and we hand it to them. And then all of a sudden, they have these tools and systems that frankly cost a lot of money. And then we just hand it to them. And that's the benefit. That's the partnership piece. At the same time, guess what I can't do? And I'll pick on Atlanta. Well, actually, I'll, go, I'll, go, I'll go pick on Denver for a second. Guess what I can't do in Denver? 
I can't go sell a house and show a home today in Denver. I can't go list a home today in Denver. And so what the partner brings to the table is the local license and the local ability to go list a home or sell a home. What we bring to the table is we'll take care of almost everything else so that you're freed up to go do more of that. I mean, really, we're just solving the age-old problem that a realtor has, which is I could make more money if I have to do all this stuff besides work with buyers and sellers. Thank you for walking us through that and giving us a nice overview of who's doing what as far as lead gen and some of the other pieces. Another question I'm sure people have is, how does the compensation work for your expansion partners? They love working with us so much, Mike. They're all volunteers, and they give us all the commission. <laughs> sure. They just, they, just love, they just love us, and they say, listen, if we could just hang out with you, you could just have all the money. We're fine. No. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Not, not so much, right? You know, we're, uh, we're real clean. We're real straight. And so in our expansion business for our partners, we're on a $50-$50 dollar show. And so we don't believe in commission splits because splits are dirty. What we believe in is sharing dollars. And you think about that. You think that you're a partner and for every dollar that you bring in, half the money goes in your pocket, half the money goes to the hub, which doesn't feel bad at all when you understand the actual net income earnings of somebody who has those systems. So in the MREA book, Gary Keller talked about how a mega, mega agent you know, should be able to net upwards of about 40 or 42%. Well, today, very, very few will net 40 or 42. Some of my friends that run you know, massive businesses might net 18% or 20% or 25%. Well, in the expansion business, if you're a partner of mine, you take 50% of the money and the only expenses you really have out of that are maybe some franchise fees or cap dollars at your market center or maybe your phone or your own private office, or you don't have all the expenses. You don't pay for the assistant. You don't pay for the Commissions Inc. platform. You don't pay for the pay-per-click. You don't pay all the other expenses. And so you get 50% of the money, and you keep the vast majority, like 90-something percent of that 50%. And so your net take-home income is one of the strongest net incomes that we find in our entire industry. Now, out of our half, we pay all the bills. Yeah, I confirm your figures on net income for large teams is somewhere between 20 and 40% typically. So I think you're right on the button there. I think it's really interesting when you started talking about this expansion, I was flashing back in my head to traditional offices of the 50s, 60s, and 70s, where the company was doing the type of things that you're doing in the hub. And then you had agents in the office that were doing like your expansion agents. And they would typically go in on a 50-50 split. So I think it's interesting that that's where you arrived to, you know, what is this, 50 years later? The thing is this, that model of like, you know, 1960s or 1970s, you know, remember that movie, Glenberry Glen Ross? I mean, like in, in that model or that era, that model worked because there was no technology. And so back in those days, the broker actually knew the buyers and sellers and they would hand out some of those leads, right? Well, then technology showed up and we put, the, we put the agent in the driver's seat of the real estate sales business. And that caused all of the mega companies and franchises to completely change their model, which was good. It was the right thing. Today, what you find is you find there's an opportunity for a mega agent, if you will, to say, all right, I can work within a franchise. I happen to be at KW. So I can work within the franchise of Keller Williams like a distribution network. And so my partners in all these different cities and states 
We already know how they're going to get paid. They already know how they're going to get paid. We already know how the money's going to flow. I don't have to call and say, hey, how does your money work? We already know because it's one giant system. It's a distribution network. And so it's provided an opportunity for a mega agent to step in and say, all right, I can provide opportunity to real estate agents that they wouldn't have otherwise. I can move them forward faster because of technology, models, and systems. And, you know, we see these agents coming in today. I mean, Mike, you remember when if you sold 100 homes a year, there was a day that you were King Kong. There was a day that we put that person on stage. Like, like some years, I was that person. We'd put them on stage, and we'd worship their feet. Like, what do you do to sell 100 homes? And, you know, and now selling 100 homes is still a really big deal. Very few do it. So if you sell 100 homes a year today, you're more told, like, hey, you know what? Don't give up on yourself. You'll get there someday. Just keep at it. And it's just like, you know, and I like that. We've got agents who are going to sell 1,000 homes this year, 1,500 homes this year. And what you've seen is you've just seen You've seen things come back a little bit where it's like, all right, if we provide opportunity, we can just share the money and it's a win for everybody. As long as it's a win, there's enough people who want to do it. Cody, this has been very interesting to hear your model of your business. And I'm sure a lot of people are listening and they have the question, are you profitable? Yes and no. So it depends on what part you look at. So to this day, October of 2017, I've taken literally no money out of the business this year. And so somebody would look at that and say, oh, well, Cody, you're not taking any money out of the business. You're not profitable. And they're just a moron. The truth is we have profit. We just reinvest it right back into the business. And so in the intent and the purpose to grow quickly, we have reinvested earnings. And so we take the money that we're making that's a profit and we pour it right back into the business to buy more systems, more people, more tools, more pay-per-click, more opportunity for our partners. And then I'm just not taking any money from it. Does that make sense? It's kind of like Amazon and Bezos. You got it. You got it. And so, you know, there's a piece of that. So here we are. The organization um, is going to end the year somewhere around $4 million in closed GCI for the year. And we don't owe anybody any money. We don't have any loans. We didn't take out any money. We don't owe anybody any money. And so we've been a cash and carry built business, which is a competitive advantage for us. We haven't gone out and solicited an investor or um, people buying in. And that allows us to be able to make the decisions that we want to make and be able to be fluid for our partner. Competitive advantage for us. It's also meant that I had to, I have to eat last. I take the money, pour it right back into the business. And you've been in this massive growth stage. If you were to speculate right now, if you stopped growing and you did start to take some profits, what percentage do you think you'd be at? If I wanted to clean them all out and not reinvest them, is that what you mean? If you just were going to stop your growth right now, you were not going to continue to grow. You were happy with the size that you're at and you just started running it as a cash machine. That's not a really good phrase, but you started running it as a good business and you had a, a profit popping down to the bottom instead of reinvesting it, where do you think that percentage would be? 18%. Yeah, that makes sense. Thank you so much. I guess stop growing tomorrow, and I could net, like, bottom drawer, 18%. 22% on a good month. I could net 18% month in and month out. Instead, though, I take that 18% and we reinvest it. And that makes sense to me. We've talked to some other expansion folks who mentioned that uh, he sees uh, just a few teams standing at the end of this crazy expansion business. 
uh, maybe five teams nationally. And so you guys are all kind of fighting to be the top dog. It's a fun fight because you get to watch. And, you know, on one hand, I'm clapping for my friends saying, go, go. This is awesome. Keep going. Don't give up. You're doing great. You know, on the other hand, I'm writing down what I can learn from them. You know, here's what they did well. Here's what they did wrong. And so it's just a, you know, so far it's a very cooperation style of we're cooperating and sharing because we know there's plenty of opportunity for everybody. You know, and we each have a different model. Like, like each of our models in the top four or five expansion businesses, we've all got kind of a different slant. And, you know, in our slant at United Home Group, you know, the typical partner that we're after is somebody who's probably selling less than 20 homes a year currently that literally overnight we can help them go to 40, 50, 60 homes a year. You know, I think about my friend Lindsay Vasquez in uh, Northern California in the Fresno market. You know, Lindsay's a great agent, been around for a while, great agent, and, you know, was averaging, you know, two, three, maybe four transactions a month. She joins us and she's cracked 10 units three times or four times in 2017. Her best month this year was 12. She sold 12 homes in a month. She'd never sold 12 in a month before us. And the thing is this, Lindsay would tell you that UHG didn't go sell those 12 homes for her that month. She sold them. Though with UHG, she was able to go sell them. You get me? And all of a sudden, now it's a partnership. And so Lindsay says, gosh, you know what? I'm going to go sell 70 or 80 homes this year. I'm going to literally double the amount of units I did last year, which is interesting. Though what is very interesting is can I go from 70 this year to 110 next year? You give some of those partners two, three, four years to get used to doing that kind of volume, to get used to working with that kind of leverage, because we've got to remind ourselves the typical partner that we hire hasn't worked with assistants before. Or if they have, it's been one. All of a sudden, they step into our business and they have all these models and systems literally at their fingertips. It takes them six months to figure out how that even works. Like, what does that mean? How does it work? How does it flow? I mean, it took me two years when I was a real estate agent directly to figure out, okay, here's how it works having an assistant talk to the client too and not second-guessing everything and not changing everything and being okay with the fact that somebody else might communicate differently than me, that somebody else might not say the exact same thing I would say, and at the end of the day, I can still sell more homes and help more people with it. And so I think about partners like Lindsay, and I go, cool. You know, Lindsay can double her volume with us literally in a year, which is cool. Can she quadruple it, though, in two years? Now, that, that is real cool. We're going to have to follow up and find out. That sounds pretty exciting. Let's do this. Let's shift gears a little bit for folks that are interested in lead generation and marketing. Let's talk about what you're doing. My understanding from some of the numbers that you are so kind to send us out is one of the big areas that you've had a lot of success with is for sale by owners. And if I understand, it's about 25% of your overall business. Can you tell us what you're doing with for sale by owners? Yes. And whoever's listening to this, you're going to want to write this down. It's real complicated. We call them. <laughs> like, seriously, we call them. We call them every day. You know, and I'm being facetious. And, you know, Mike, somebody will ask me sometimes, all right, Cody, what's in the top three or top four of your lead gen structure for business? And when they hear for sell by owners right there towards the top, they'll usually look at me out of the side of their eye and be like, no, nah, seriously, what is it? And I'm like, no, nah, seriously, Holmes, like it's like for sell by owners right there. I mean, the thing is this. You know, Dianica Kostas said once it was the fastest source of business opportunity. And we believe that. They want to sell their house. And so we call them, and then we go visit them. 
and we use the scripts, we use the dialogues that most agents know, we do the same things that most agents know to do, the real magic is we actually do it. The real magic is we do it and we don't stop. The real magic is that we have a system to follow up. You know, we talk to a for sale by owner, they tell us the same thing they tell everybody, um, the same scripts, the same dialogues, they tell us they don't want to pay an agent, they tell us they don't want to hire somebody, blah, blah, blah. We know that, we're not shocked by that, though we have a system in Commissions Inc. that we drop them into, and then we have a system with our 411 that we're actually calling them and following up with them. And so we have a realistic expectation that in four weeks or 10 weeks or 25 weeks, when they decide to list, we're right there in front of them. And so we just don't make it more complicated than it needs to be. Now, the piece to it is that every agent who's been around for any amount of time is going to conceptually know what to do in their head. They know what to do. That doesn't mean they're doing it. The missing link is the accountability. And one of the things that we provide is we provide the accountability. So when a partner joins us, they have a regional director who's individually coaching them. And not just coaching them generically, they're coaching them based on the models and systems of United Home Group. And so they say, great, pull up your sync account right now. Let's open it. Let's look at it together. Let's go through it. You should call this one here. You should say this to this one. It's very, very purposeful. It's very detailed to the UHG systems. You know, and so an RD, a regional director, hops on the phone with a partner and says, hey, I was looking through some notes and you haven't turned in a call around to our call center for two months. Why aren't you doing that? You literally have to tell a marketer at your fingertips, why aren't you using them? And they're like, oh, yeah, I forgot. And you go, yeah, exactly. So let's do a call around for you. You got a big open house coming next weekend. Let's do a call around and call the 200 nearest you know, neighbors. And then we use a system like Land Voice. You get all the data. We call them, and then we're seeing up that agent. You know, while that agent is out there doing more lead gen, we're making the phone calls, making sure their open house is popping this week. The for sale by owner approach, who's making those calls? Is that happening in the call center, or is that happening with the expansion partner? There's some states that our call center can call and talk to the for sale by owner directly, and there's some states that we can't. And so in the states that we can, we have the call center making phone calls in, and some of those opening dialogue with the sell-by owners and teeing them up for the partner. In most states, the partner is calling them for sell-by owner directly, and that partner is calling the FISBO or emailing the FISBO or knocking on their door, whatever the lead structure they choose to do. You know, some of our partners don't want to just make phone calls. They want to pop by the FISBO's house. Some partners say, you know, every single Saturday, I'm going to go out and I'm going to visit 12 uh, FISBOs at their open house. Cool. That's not a bad model. Our system will help you hold that accountable and help you go do it. And we'll give you great ideas and we'll give you great models and training and coaching to go do it. Others say, you know what? That would drive me nuts, Cody. I don't want to go see those FISBOs on Saturday. I just want to call five of them every single day. Cool. Well, we have a great system to help you call five of those every single day and hold it accountable. Here's what to say. Here's what not to say. Here's what to send. Here's what not to send. You know, and we have a toolbox, if you will, that our partners have access to with all kinds of downloads and all kinds of, you know, things to drop by or things to hand somebody or uh, pieces or marketing pieces. And so they can just go into that toolbox, grab it, and send it out. Let's talk about that call. You said calling is the most important. That initial call, could you walk us through your approach, your script to the for sale by owner on that initial call? I think getting face-to-face is most important. I don't think that the phone call is most important. The phone call is probably the most likely because you can do more of it. And so the phone has become the most important, not because it's the best, it's the most leveraged. You know, I can talk to 15 for sale by owners on the phone 
and the amount of time it might take me to see two of them face to face. And so the calls are very simple. We call and we, you know, we actually follow the script that we learned in Bold and learned from apps and learned from Keller Williams. We call that for sub-owner and we launch right into a conversation asking them about where they intend on moving once they sell. And then they usually tell us and then we continue to ask questions and then we ask them if we can come and see their home because we might have a buyer for it. Now, the only place that we tweak some of those scripts is that within our system, we can make comments like my group or our group sold 112 homes last month. We'd love to make yours next. You know, my group or our group sold uh, 12 homes this week. I'd love to make yours next. You know, my group or our group helped, uh, you know, 250 for sub-owners sell their own home last year. We'd love to make yours the next one. You know, so we pepper in things like that, that maybe not every, you know, individual agent could say, though if they were creative, they could probably say something. And we also, we do focus heavily on buyer listings. And if you're smart in our group, you use the buyer listings with your sellers. So can I role play that with you? Sure. So if I'm talking with you on the phone and you're a for sale by owner, So, you know, Mike, um, I happen to be working with 27 individual buyers right now that have signed a buyer listing. May I explain? That'd be great. Yeah, please explain. You know, what that means is they signed a piece of paper, Mike, with me saying they're ready to buy, they're qualified to buy, they're pre-approved to buy. They just haven't found the right home yet. I have 27 of them right now. I'd like to come see your home before I bring 27 people through to see which one or maybe two of those 27 the home would fit for. Is that okay? Sure. And so if I step out of the scripts, that's an adaptation to the for sale by owner scripts that almost every agent has heard at different you know, conferences or training events, and the scripts are always good. Every, I mean, the truth is every script works and no script doesn't work. And so anything works. Though if you're focused on buyer listings, you could say something like that. You know, one of the things I hear from people you know, I feel weird calling for sale by owners and telling them I might have a buyer like when I really don't have any buyers. And the thing is this, if I have, you know, I throw out the number 27, uh, if I have 25 or 15 or 6 or 80 or 200 buyer listings that I've signed with people sitting in a binder somewhere, you know, Mike, I feel a lot better sharing a script that I actually believe in. Like I'm sitting here looking at, you know, maybe 28 buyer listings on my desk that I'm working with right now. and Mike, Mr. For Sale by Owner, I think one of these 28 might actually be a buyer. Like that makes it really easy for me to say I'm working for these 28 people. They've signed a piece of paper saying they're going to buy, and they're only going to buy from me. Try come see your house. Let's go to the next step. They say, yes, come on over. You go to their home. You take a quick walkthrough. Are you going to give your listing presentation at that point, or was it just to make the connection with the seller? The answer is yes and yes. That's almost always going to follow the line of what is taught in bold from Diana, that you go to their home and you're giving a problem presentation. So when you're meeting with a for sale by owner for the first time, you haven't earned the right to give a listing presentation. They don't think they need a listing presentation. You've got to give them a problem presentation so they understand they have a problem. So we're walking through the home. They're showing us the house. I mean, you know how this goes. You know, they're showing us the house, and we're going to start asking questions, and we're going to start having conversations, and we're going to ask questions like, well, how many offers have you seen? And have you accepted an offer on your home? All things we learned from Diana and Bold, I mean, we didn't create it. We just do it really well. And they're going to say, well, I haven't taken any offers. And it's kind of, I mean, that's pretty much a given or else you wouldn't be standing in their home 
We just want them to say, I haven't taken an offer. We need them to remember they haven't taken an offer. In other words, their idea of being for sale by owner, has it worked or has it not worked so far? Well, it's not worked so far. Do you have percentages of your success rate with for sale by owners, either for if you start to talk to X number or if you go visit X number, so many will fall out the bottom, so many will sign up a listing agreement with you? It's so different for partner. I can share with you that when I was doing it directly, for every four to five for sale by owners that I would go and meet with, I'd end up with a listing. Okay. And so if I met with four or five, one of them would end up signing with me and end up closing with me. And so, you know, some weeks it was more, some weeks it was less. And some of those for sale by owners, you know, you meet with one time and you're in their home eight minutes or 10 minutes. It just doesn't go well. And you know, the relationship is weird and you just, you don't click. And it's maybe the wrong time. You know, that might be the same for sale by owner that somebody else visits the next Tuesday. And it's just this perfect click. And all of a sudden they get the listing or take the listing. And that's okay. At the end of the day, though, there's a numbers game to that. And we have some partners right now that for every three FISBOs they meet with, they end up with a closing. Well, that's fantastic. The other piece is, you know, to figure out a closing ratio like that, it's kind of like asking, what's your percentage of close ratio for internet lead generation? Well, there's only one way to figure that out. And the question is, how much of a time frame do you want to look at? Is that within six months or six years? We sold a home the other day to somebody from our sync account that we had had an internet lead-in for almost four years. So until that day, I would have counted it as not a sale. So that would have hurt my number. As soon as we closed it, like, no, hang on, now we just converted that bad boy. And the same thing with for sale by owners, right? One of our listers here in Portland, his name is Charlie Kimberly, awesome agent, and he listed for sale by owner the other day that he's been following up with for 27 months. Wow. 27 months. So for 26 months... Yeah, so for 26 months, that would have hurt his number. Well, on month 27, when that guy listed with him, all of a sudden it helped his number. And so the one thing that we do get to control is how many contacts we make. We get to control how many people we meet with. And because we can control those two things, over a short amount of time, we can actually control how many listings we take. We just need to know our own numbers. And for for sell by owners, how often are you contacting them? Are you contacting them every day, once a week? Like once they go into a follow-up bucket? Yeah, once you identified them and you start that first call, after that first contact, let's say they don't set an appointment, how often are you contacting them? Well, the only reason that we would do more than once a week is if they alluded to something like, um, you know what, Cody? We're probably going to list. I don't know if you're the guy. Uh, we're probably going to list in the next week. Well, if that's the case, I'm going to talk to until they say quit calling me. So usually, more like, no, we're just doing our own thing. We don't want to pay an agent. We're going to try our own for a month or two or whatever. And there's no reason to contact them every day. And so we put them into a follow-up bucket within um, Missions Inc., within Sync, and we call once a week. And so I teach a class called the Seven Steps to Ten List. And one of the models in that is called follow-up Wednesdays. And so on Wednesdays, you just call those people and you follow up. And the script is so simple. Think about it. Your very first contact with somebody, you're probably going to use your best script. And if they don't list with you, the next time you talk to them, you're going to use your second best script. Well, the problem is once you get probably two scripts deep, you probably have nothing new to say, which is when most agents quit calling people. And it's when I say it's when you should never quit calling people. The faster you can get through those two scripts, and get to a simple follow-up script, you're probably going to make more money. And that follow-up script, once you fall into that bucket, 
I'm going to call you every single week, probably on Wednesdays. Say, hey, Mike, it's Cody over at Keller Williams Realty. I'll be brief. Do you need anything real estate related this week? Oh, hey, Cody. No, I'm good this week. Awesome. Well, I tell you what, if you do need anything real estate related this week, would you be sure to give me a call? Sure. Awesome. Well, hey, you know what? Before I let you go, I've been able to sell seven homes this week. I'd love to make yours next. When you're ready, please call me. Otherwise, I'll just catch you next week and I'll, I'll touch base, see how you're doing. Very good. Thank you. Great. All right. See you later. It's that simple. It's that easy. Now, usually 70% of the time, and we track our numbers, 70% of the time we get voicemail, which means seven times out of 10, it's a voicemail. And the voicemail is, hey, Mike, it's Cody over here at Keller Williams and just wanted to call and follow up with you. And you know, it's Wednesday again. And listen, if you need anything real estate related this week, just be sure to give me a call. If I don't hear from you, I'll give you a ring next week. We're always ready for you. We just want to match our behavior to your motivation. So let us know when you're ready. We sold 10 homes this week. Love to make yours the 11th. Talk to you next week, if not sooner. And it's literally that easy. I love the persistence and the fact that you're dropping in a little bit of success. Sure. You know, and if I know something about the neighborhood, you know, I'll say, hey, you know, if, if they're not by sales, I'll say, hey, we... By the way, if I'm a realtor in that city and I'm part of the MLS, I get to say we. And I would say we, as in the MLS, Board of Realtors, we sold two homes in your neighborhood this last week. We'd love to make yours the next. So if they're not my own sales, I'll use collective sales and I'll use my market center or I'll use my brokerage or I'll even be so, you know, so brazen to use our multiple listing service. That's okay. That's why we have a cooperative system. And so it's just a matter of telling your story. You know, it was Seth Godin that said, you better be careful to tell your own story because if you don't, somebody else is. And so we tell our story really, really, really well. And, and when you've made that contact with somebody for 14, 15, 17, 18 weeks, if they're ever going to list with somebody, pretty good chance they're going to list with you. Some of this is based on overkill over time. We tend to make it so complicated and people say, what's the one thing to say? Well, the one thing to say is probably hello. And basically, from there forward, you can do nearly anything if you don't stop doing it. Well, Cody, thank you for walking us through for Sell by Owners and, and how you're approaching that. Cody, you've been very successful in this business. What drives you? What's driven me for years is the reality that I might look down one day and realize that I lived a mediocre life. I had a mediocre impact on people. And I had a mediocre business. And I'm so damn scared of looking down someday and realizing that I had been mediocre and never realized the full potential that that drives me day in and day out. You know, and that, that drive has shifted over the years. Originally, it was all about me being mediocre. And then as I got in business with more people and expanded my horizon and, and then ultimately got in business with good people and expanded their horizons, now, what keeps me up at night sometimes is what if the people I'm in business with are mediocre? What if they look down one day and go, oh my gosh, I was mediocre. I was average. I lived an average life. I was an average dad. I was an average wife. I was an average parent. I was an average real estate person. Man, that drives me nuts. And so that drives me. I don't, I don't want to end up that way. And so I've wanted to leave a thumbprint on people's lives for years. And being able to be a part of expansion and being able to build a giant real estate sales business, I mean, we're creating jobs that Mike didn't exist a year ago. I have a regional director 
in expansion. I got a couple of regional directors in expansion who are pushing sixteen, eighteen, twenty thousand dollars a month in income. Well, that job didn't even exist twelve months ago in our entire industry. We're creating opportunity and creating jobs that didn't exist. And you give that two more years to mature, four more years to mature, those are businesses that didn't exist. And that's exciting to me, the idea of leaving a thumbprint on people's lives. Well, Cody, if you were going to advise a brand new agent just getting in the business, what would you tell them to do first? I'd do a couple things. Number one, I would find a way, and I don't care which way it is, I would find a way to add two people a day to a database. I don't even care what the database is housed in. I don't care if it's in your phone in the notes section. I don't care if it's in Microsoft Excel. I don't care if it's in Sync or in eEdge. Or it, doesn't, it literally doesn't matter at that point. Just put two people in every day that weren't there the day before and follow up with them. At some point, you will look down and realize it was the greatest single decision you made in your real estate sales business. Because at the end of the day, that database is still the business that we have. Now, you can build it a hundred different ways. Though if I was brand new again, two people a day, no matter what, I can add two people a day. Well, you look down at the end of the year and you've got 600, 700 people on that database. That's a rocking number. You look down in five years and you go, holy cow, I got 2,000 people in this database. You go out 10 years and you go, whoa, I've got 7,000 people in here, plus 10 years of following up with them. There's almost a degree of you can't screw this up if you're willing to do that. Problem is people aren't willing to do it. Cody, do you think the top agent interviews like the one we're doing now are valuable? I think they're incredibly valuable if people will listen to them and people will implement something that came from them. You know, what happens is people will listen to an interview or listen to an idea or go to a function or go to a a convention or a class and they'll walk home with this list of 22 things and they'll go to implement 22 things and they can't. You know, a really smart mentor of mine once looked at me and said, Cody, I can do anything. What I can't do is everything. So I got to choose. And I believe in the rule of two when it comes to implementation. I don't know that you can only implement one thing at a time. I believe you could probably implement a couple things. I think that you could probably say, you know what? I'm going to bring on Fizzbo right now, and I'm going to do a really good job on open house. You could probably do that. You could probably say, you know what? I'm going to bring on internet lead generation, and I'm going to work this geographic farm. You could probably do two things like that. You could probably implement a couple of things at one time. Though we don't have a strategy issue in our business. We have an implementation issue or an execution issue. We all have 100 ideas. The problem is we've got 100 ideas and we're using none of them. Cody, I've come to the end of my questions for today. Do you have any parting thoughts for the listeners? I do. I have a couple. My first parting thought would be this. You know, it was Gary Keller that said to me, you could literally be no more than five years from becoming anybody that you would like to be. When you look down at your life right now, you have to remember that within five years, you could literally be anyone that you want to be. You could be doing anything you want to do. And the truth is we tend to overestimate what could be done in a year. And we dramatically underestimate what could be done in three years or five years or 10 years. You know, in the calendar and the IRS talked about January through January. So by default, we look at January through January. Instead, if you look at three Januaries through three Januaries, you got three years. You can literally do anything. You can transform everything about who you are in three years. You know, another parting thought that I have is this. Most of us try to do this whole thing alone. And we say something like, I know what to do. I just need to go and do it. 
The truth is coaching works. The truth is having a great coach matters. The truth is if I'm standing on a block and that block is how much money I make, I've got to make peace with the fact that that also matches my level of thought. You see, I believe that your level of thought will always meet you at your level of income. And we have to increase the thought level to increase the income level. The problem is, if I'm standing on a block that says $5 million a year in income, I think like someone who has a $5 million income. If I'd like to go make $10 million in income, I have to make peace with the fact that I'm the least likely person to move myself from $5 million to $10 million. And the reason is, I don't think like someone who makes $10 million. I think like someone who makes $5 million. So I've got to make peace and go hire a coach that can push me to think like someone who earns 10. And when I do, lo and behold, I'll start earning 10. If I thought like someone who earned 10, I'd be at 10 and not 5. Well, Cody, you are thinking bigger and achieving bigger results. You are on the frontier of the expansion movement and are aggressively expanding across the country. You are pouring all of your profits back into the company to maximize growth. You're working on two levels, the cloud level and big picture company growth and the ground level and individual agent productivity. Together, you're building a force of nature and a culture of achievement. Thank you for sharing and being our top agent of the month. And join us next call when we talk to an agent who sold 1,384 homes were 408 million last year with only 22 people. Find out who he is on the next success call. If you like the show and want to know when the next one's coming out, click the subscribe button on iTunes or Stitcher. And if you want to hear more episodes like this, give the show a five-star review and write a quick comment. I read them all and it motivates me to keep going and share the top agent success stories with you. Thanks. If you're looking for more ways to generate leads, check out our sponsor, Real GTV, real estate agent lead generation television, and their giant database library of video trainings where top agents reveal, demonstrate, and discuss their best lead generation methods. Visit RealGTV, R-E-A-L-G dot TV. If you're low on funds or just want to get the maximum leverage, check out my masterclass webinar titled Top 5 Free Lead Sources for Real Estate Agents. Learn more at freeleadtime.com. That's freeleadtime.com. Oh, and if you have a real estate friend who needs some inspiration, tell them about the Success Calls podcast. And don't you forget to subscribe right now to hear all the great top agent ideas. Keep moving forward. You've been listening to Success Calls on the Mastermind Agent Network where top real estate agents from across North America reveal their success secrets, strategies, and systems in up-close and personal interviews. You can find all the calls at www.mastermindagent.com.